You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to this Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins. You can find me at Conquest3 on Twitter. And today I have the huge privilege of speaking with Brian Pellegrini, the founder and senior analyst at Intertemporal Economics. And he's all the way over there in the US. Where are you today, Brian? Uh, I'm in uh, Westchester, just north of New York City. Thank you very much for joining us from Westchester in New York City. Thank you very much. Now, Brian, I want to start this conversation, if I may, with you, talking about your educational past, your professional qualifications, including where you attained them, please. Sure, definitely. Um, Well, so I was a computer science major at uh, Columbia Engineering School back uh, just after the wheel was invented and uh, (laughs) um, worked on Wall Street for a little while uh, after that. And then um, I um, attended the uh, Master's of Science and Finance program at Northeastern University uh, while I was um, uh, at Connolly Insight and I was... uh, getting my CFA. So CFA, you have, um, you know, these off these down periods, right? So every six months where you just like sitting twiddling your thumbs and uh, CFA is very, it's all, it's awesome. It covers a lot of stuff, but it's very pen and paper. Right. And so you don't, there's not a whole lot of application. It's all checking the knowledge. Um, And so I wanted to kind of round that out. Um, And then in, um, 2014, I attended the executive MBA program at Columbia Business School. Um, while I was also at Connolly Insight, I got a lot done while I was at Connolly Insight. And um, uh, that rounds it out. Cool. Thank you. I wanted to just go back a little bit and talk to us about that period of time you had on Wall Street, in Wall Street, what you did, what your experiences were, what was going on in the markets at the time. Sure, sure. Um so it was a really interesting time. I, I started uh, in January of 2007 at Morgan Stanley working in the asset-backed securities group. Um, and so I saw the very peak to the very trough of the uh, of the um, asset-backed securities boom. And I got to learn a lot about um, how the shadow banking system worked and how it was important to a bubble economy and maintaining that bubble. Um, and so, you know, I didn't realize how historically important it was at the time, but, uh, when I first started, but it certainly became pretty apparent, uh, as things started to break. Um, and so I worked there, uh, for two and a half years and then, um, uh, the, the great, uh, decimation happened in, in, in structured finance and everybody got laid off. And, um, I was privileged to spend a year as a bartender and a bar manager at uh, a, a bar in Manhattan, Bar 9, which was a lot of fun. And uh, learned a lot there about people. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a good little break. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, it's brilliant that we learn a little bit more about the nuances of the market, some of the things that's happened, some of your experiences because of the layoffs as well, and the experiences of dealing with the, these volatile markets, which would seem to come around in cycles, don't they? Uh, I want to talk now, if I may, about your your first job and journey into economics. We'll just move on to that bit there and, and, and where it all started for you, really. 
Sure. Um, well, so I started off in the, I knew I wanted to work in um, like financial services. I didn't really, uh, I, I had been interested in economics in college, but I didn't really see a professional application for it at the time, right? It's just lack of knowledge um, other than being a professor or, or some sort of researcher in that, you know, pure research role. Um, and so I worked uh, briefly in the, in the um, client service department at Bridgewater Associates um, way back uh, before even Morgan Stanley. And that's where I discovered the role of the strategist. Um, and I had no knowledge or skills that they were interested in uh, in research. So I was advised that I needed to go and get those. And uh, that, that prompted my journey onto Wall Street. Um, and so after... Um, after the bar, I worked uh, for a little while as a uh, as an investment banker at uh, a boutique investment bank um, with uh, small cap technology firms, and uh, I was looking for an economics research role at that time. And I came across uh, a um, on the Columbia job board uh, um, a posting for a little company with almost no information on its website, Connolly Insight. But it was macroeconomics research, and I was like, "Well, what the heck, right? Like, let's go for it." Um, so I applied, and um, you know, I had been um, while I was at the bar, I was helping a um, uh, in a um, emerging markets analyst start up his own boutique research firm, an economics research firm, um, uh, as an internship, sort of, you know, just to sort of learn the ropes a little bit, and so. Um, the um, business manager at Connolly Insight, Camila, was I mentioned that and she was like, would you, you know, leave your banking job for for, you know, to work with Paul at, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 in his boutique firm? And I was like, I'd leave that this place in a second for him. Like and so she was like, well, <laughs> uh, that that's interesting because that sounds a lot like what we have here at Connolly Insight. And so um, I met with Bernard and Dino, his partner at the time. And um, it was great because I I knew that I did I, I we just talked shop the whole time, uh, like I knew that I I had I was pretty sure I had gotten the job because I never got any questions about like you know what what would your boss say is the worst thing about you or any any of those typical interview questions, and Bernard really liked that um, uh, I was thoughtful about the questions and that he actually asked me a question that I had no idea the answer to, but he liked that I didn't just give some BS answer. And um, that I sat and thought about it. And he was like, don't worry, you're not going to know. And it, it was, um, you know, at the time, India and China were roughly in the same place economically in terms of development. But China was running a huge current account deficit and uh, current account surplus. And, and China, India was running a, um, a huge current account deficit. Uh, and it was, you know, why is that, right? They're, they're so similar in terms of their path along economic development. Um, and the reason it's very interesting is that the one child policy, um, as a result of the, neither country has very good social security, it's all locally based. And so because of the one child policy in China, um, people saved 35 cents on every dollar because if anything bad happened to them or their kid, uh, they would need to have the cash on hand. Whereas in India, uh, with a less uh, mature banking system and without the social security, the way people save is is by having lots of kids. And and you have eight kids, one of them is going to work at Microsoft and that they'll fund your retirement. 
Um, and so as a result, you have, uh, um, you know, this mismatch in consumption between the two countries, even though the, the people are trying to effectively do the same thing. So very interesting. But I, and I had no idea, but I, you know, I didn't just say like, well, you know, like the, the Wall Street thing where you just like shoot off and an answer so that it's not and say it confidently so that you sound like you know what you're talking about. Right. Like um, uh, so he appreciated that. And that I I wasn't a classically trained economist um, that I had learned what I had learned from personal interest and personal study um, and not gone through the indoctrination process that so many people go through where there's one way to do things. And it's particularly prevalent in the United States uh, because we don't have the sort of, um, you know, the history of the London School of Economics of having uh, alternative viewpoints, right? And and having somebody be uh, the the devil's advocate, if you will, against whatever the 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 the, the current um, dogma is in economics. Uh, so he appreciated that, uh, you know, I had come so far just out of personal interest and that he could help, help develop my, my, uh, knowledge and, and career further. So it was a match made in heaven. Fantastic. Now let's talk a bit more about the impact of Bernard Connolly on your economics then and your journey and also your thinking, um, with regards to the Austrian theories, you know, mm -hmm. of economics. Sure. So, um, uh bernard uh is a, a big um uh he draws from many schools of economics right whatever's the best tool right so i mean the one thing that, that's great about him is he's not dogmatic in that this is the right way or that's the right way right you have many different toolkits and the the trick is to draw from the right toolkit at the right time and a key aspect of austrian theory is malinvestment. And one of the best um, uh, thinkers on that range of subjects is, is Friedrich Hayek. Um, and how do you match up the market interest rate with the rate of return on capital? And if those two things, the market rate of interest, the rate of return on capital, and the rate of time preference, which is uh, the, the rate which makes people decide whether to borrow to consume or not, if those three rates are in line, then you can have intertemporal balance, right? So the consumption uh, and investment are timed properly so that the supply comes online at the right time as demand. And then state prices will stay stable. If those things get out of alignment, then it becomes very dangerous and very difficult to get them back into alignment because all the incentives become um, misaligned. And so Bernard's great innovation was realizing um, the applicability of Hayek's theories to the global economy and especially the U.S. economy since the mid-1990s. And basically that uh, when the rate of return on investment, uh, as it was perceived, started to increase so sharply in the 1990s, um, the, uh, the Fed should have started raising interest rates to prevent the stock, right? But they, ba they go based on, on measured inflation. And with China entering the economy and with productivity gains because of those wonderful investments, there, was, there wasn't the inflation of goods prices in the present, right? But what's so important to understand about, um, uh, about investment is that capital 
represents um, the price of goods in the future. So if you are a saver, right, and you are the price of stocks goes up before you buy them, right, then that means the price of your future consumption, whatever they tell you inflation is 20 years later, right? If, if 20 years ago, the stock prices went up before you bought them, then that means those goods and services that you buy are that much more expensive in terms of the, the, the past money that you had purchased it with. Um, and so because of the way that the, um, the government measures inflation, because it, they can only count there's a there's a conceptual aspect and and there's a, a an operational aspect right they can only count things as they're being purchased right um and and not uh, 10 years from now right so because they don't consider asset price inflation to be inflation um inflation got out of control in the 1990s right it just wasn't anything anybody realized um and so um they uh, started raising interest rates um, in in 1998 and and started a series of small financial crises, right? Uh, Long term capital management and and things like that, but came to the rescue. Um, but eventually, what happens is um, the market rate of interest goes above the rate of return on capital, the Austrian natural rate, right? And when that happens. That arbitrage that people that investors initially see, where the rate of return on investment is higher than the market rate, and you say, "Well, I could just borrow to infinity and just keep investing it, and uh, that'll be great, right?" But what happens is the scissor blades close slowly but surely. The the best, you know, investors work from the the highest rate of return projects down, right? And so uh, slowly but surely, the available investments, the rate of return on capital starts dropping. Right, because the better projects are taken up. Um, and at the same time, as the central bank is reacting to rising inflation, which does eventually rise, uh, the, the market rate of interest starts going up and you get a, the scissor blades close. And at that point, that arbitrage becomes negative and you get capital liquidation. Uh, and so the desired stock of capital goes down and you get a crash. Um, and that's what, and then they, you know, to, 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 react to the uh, the crash because they they're uh, a political entity and they're focused on current inflation they say oh my god we got to reverse everything cut interest rates as hard as you can right and then that just swings the cycle back and so that's why we enter these booms and busts and for a long time we were able to uh sort of the the federal reserve was able to cheat the system because they weren't getting goods inflation right because they were getting so much cheap labor right from china from india all these other places were providing um uh a damper on goods price inflation but asset price inflation just keep going up for the last 20 years and now we've reached the end of that road right where labor costs in china are much higher than they used to be right uh all of the um uh excess capacity that was built up after the 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 the, the great recession has been taken up. So now you run out of things and now you're left with all this malinvested capital that was put in place because there was an arbitrage, not because it was a good idea. And so as a result, we've reached the, the end of that road and that the end of that road is highly inflationary. And it's a very difficult situation for um, the central bank because they can either... Um, accommodate the inflation and just allow it to keep rising, 
or they can trigger a liquidation and a rationalization of the capital structure, which is what they should do. But um, I, I think that the institutional changes that have taken place at the Fed over the last since the crisis, but but have been um, uh, locked in in the last three years, uh, those are going to prevent any sort of liquidation and we're going to get an inflationist uh, reaction to uh, any sort of downturn. We've already seen that in March of 2023, right? Where that was the begin that was their opportunity to show that they actually um, would allow bad investments to be liquidated. But as soon as the um, the unwind started, right? Interest rates rose. They uh, leverage structures started to break, and the um, crypto shadow banking system that had developed to replace the asset-backed securities shadow banking system. Um, it's interesting how much they realized those two things were the same, um, but they clearly rushed to the rescue immediately. And by bailing out the unsecured depositors, those unsecured depositors were not mom and pop with their retirement savings at Silicon Valley Bank. Those were private equity funds that were stashing the deposits from stable coins, which were um, uh, the the sort of front end mechanism of the shadow bank, the crypto shadow banking system. And by bailing out those unsecured depositors, what they did was in one motion, they did what took them a while in, in 2008 when, the, when they started rolling out all the, the alphabet soup, if you remember all the different, um, right? So yes. those the alphabet soup of facilities that was meant to expand the money supply, expand the official umbrella of protection of official money into the private mm -hmm. money that had been created by the shadow banking system. So the shadow banking system, people think of it in terms of debt, right? But, and that is an important aspect of it, but what the really important from an economic standpoint aspect of shadow banking is that it creates private money and private money is money until all of a sudden everyone decides it's not. And so, right. So that, so you have a sudden expansion of the money supply and the ability to consume and invest. And then all of a sudden that gets called into question and everybody says, well, this is actually just some stupid token. This isn't actual money. Oh my God. Right. And they head for the exits. This time the Fed uh, was was partly because it was easier. They could just say, well, you know, we already have these, um, you know, systematic rules in place. That's all money. Don't worry. And so they in one swoop um, expanded the private money supply, uh, expanded the umbrella of public money into this gigantic private money supply. And what they should have done was allow that system to crash and, and we would have had a, a bad recession and and a liquidation and a return to, to um, rationality and capital markets. But by preventing that, all they did was sow the seeds of the next inflationary wave, which is coming soon. Thank you for that reply. I think it's interesting that we are, I think we're already feeling that inflationary wave. We've seen some of the reactions and it's always reactionary. It's not precautionary, mm -hmm. you know, and so we're in a situation now where across the, the UK and the, the US, they're they're fighting inflation and they're saying do one thing we're going to get it down we're going to get it down interest rates are still creeping up or staying sticky mm -hmm. as well as inflation so mm -hmm. why did they keep repeating these same mistakes historically Brian in your view um that's a great question I mean I, I part of it is is that the operating framework of most economics excludes the possibility of a bubble 
right? So oh. they 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 believe that the transversality constraint is respected, and the transversality constraint is is that no one would lend you more money than you could make in your lifetime, right? So that you would never you could never die with a negative balance, right? But that's clearly not true. People go bankrupt all the time, right? We we have institutions in society to allow that to happen, right? Um, and so they exclude that possibility as a reality, and um, uh, you know their focus is on tomorrow, right? Their focus is on inflation in the present and the very near future. So. In their view, if you take a bunch of short-term equilibriums, right? So they're thinking in terms of present equilibrium of goods, goods and services demand, goods and services supply. And so they say, okay, how do we get demand to equal the supply that's in place that they feel they have no control over, right? In their view, the private sector sets the supply and it's it's it has bouts of irrationality that the Fed has nothing to do with and no way to control. And the only thing that they can do is match up demand and supply. And in their view is if you take a bunch of short-term periods and match them all up and have supply and demand equal each other, then that will give you long-term equilibrium. And one of the um, – uh, uh, towards the end of his uh, career, uh, Mervyn King gave a lot of great speeches that I would definitely recommend people go back and look at. The audacity of pessimism is a great one. Um, uh, uh, and where, you know, he was coming towards the end of his time as, as the governor. And so he could be a little more loose with his, open with his discussion, right? And, um, uh, you know, he pointed out that the the right thing for us as an inflation targeting central bank the right thing for the the Bank of England to do in the short term is exactly the wrong thing for us to do in the long run, right? And so by stringing together these short-run equilibriums, you don't get a long-run equilibrium. You get further and further away from the long-run equilibrium. And uh, the invisible hand does its job, right? Where where um, the, the rational actors in, in the economy try to get back to equilibrium. So these crashes are not panics, right? People do panic, but they're not the result of a panic, right? The panic is the reaction to the re repricing of capital. So these periodic crashes that we get are not irrational. They're not based on fear. They are rational actors in society trying to efficiently organize capital. And and the the the, the central banks of the world have stood against that. Uh, for 30 years now, right, where they will not allow a, a full uh, adjustment, right? And and we saw, um, you know, uh, a, a an allowance of liquidation in the 19, in, in the United States in the 1991 recession, right? They did allow uh, a liquidation of, of bad uh, investments to take place. In 2000, they sort of did, but they did come to the rescue. In 2008, they started to, and then they said, oh my God, the precipice is there, right? And they 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 completely st shut down the, the repricing. <clears throat> and then the culmination of, of that attitude happened in, in March of 2020, right? Where uh, the reaction to the COVID crisis was very, very similar to um, the oil price shock of 1973, where you have a supply event Right where they should be raising interest rates to stop people from consuming. Right, the the supply side of the economy has shut down. There is no more production 
don't consume anything you don't absolutely need to because we're going to need to live off of inventories for a while, right? But they did the opposite. They cut it and they did this in 1973. They said, oh my God, there's going to be a recession. And you know what? That's going to be bad for our political bosses. So we better do something. And they did. They reacted very violently um, in economic terms and um, uh, uh, cut interest rates and fed um, uh, the increased consumption and investment at a time when it should have been contracted until the supply shock had passed. Um, and so that uh, inflationist attitude has now been um, codified in the Fed's operating framework, right? So they they focus on maximum employment, not, not full employment anymore. It's maximum employment. It's not how many people should be working so that we can have balance. It's how many people can we get to jobs? Absolutely, right? Um, and inflation is only considered a problem when it's visibly too high and rising, right? So they deprioritize the inflation mandate and and uh, put um employment above that and so at the first sign of any sort of employment of employment weakness um they're gonna say well forget about the uh the inflation mandate the, the operating framework says that we're supposed to focus on employment right and um you know it's it's very much a return to um the pre-volker fed and the way that it operated back then and and if, if you look at um, speeches, speech, recent speeches by, um, you know, Leo Brainerd and, and Lisa Cook. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the Employment Act of 1946, right? And that the government, this, uh, which is a, a highly Keynesian um, codification of the government's responsibility to make sure that everyone has a job and that, and that they should be protected from economic shocks. And so, uh, you know, we're 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 right back to that inflationary mindset, and um, that's what people should be looking out for the next ten years until there is a political reckoning where the populace says we're sick of inflation, deal with it. Until that happens, um, we're just going to get worse and worse inflation, and and it's important to think of it in terms of inflation volatility. It's not going to go to twenty percent for ten years, right? The you'll have year over year inflation will probably hit 20% at some point right but and it will come down but it'll come down to 6% or 8% right um but the price level will stay high right so your purchasing power even though that it's not going to be hyperinflation that just keeps going um investors need to be really concerned about uh protecting the real value of their capital uh uh over the next 10 years because it, it, the government has a huge incentive to um, repress interest rates and liquidate its its massive World War II size debt load via inflation uh, instead of uh, uh, austerity and and unemployment. That's the reality. No, that's a great great reply. Thank thank you for that, Brian. Now I want to touch a little bit on the fact that you're working with Brian Bernard Connolly and um, the rest of the team. And then you moved on to set up your own shop, as we call it, um, with um, intertemporal economics. Can you give us a, an overview of your firm, when sure. it started, and the sort of clientele that you work with as well? Because we're talking about all the macro and microeconomics um, of the markets. And these clients are actually wanting all of that research that you're putting together for them. Yeah. So um, Bernard uh, um, 
retired and went back to uh, to Britain in um, at the end of 2017 to write a book, which is just about to come out. I have an advanced copy. You always hurt the ones you love. Um, it's a spectacular uh, exposition of his genius, and um, it really explains how we got here uh, and how to understand the the interest rate um, capital nexus and how that fits together and and how those bubbles are born. So it's it's a great work. I helped him work on it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's I would highly recommend it to the readers. It's I got I have an advanced copy, so uh, you'll all have to wait out there, but um, it should be coming. out. It'll come out soon and you can pre-order it. I definitely would recommend it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Bernard Bernard had left and, um, you know, I I needed to find something to do with myself. And so I, you know, asked some of the clients if they would uh, have me, um, uh, you know, as a, as a research provider. And so my clients are, many of them are legacy Connolly Insight clients, but I have some new ones as well. Um, and it's primarily, you know, it's a mix, um, you know, sort of the base is definitely global macro hedge funds. Those are people who can monetize it most easily, right? Um, you know, so they can take it and turn it into investments very quickly. Um, but I have, um, I also advise banks and high net worth individuals, Um and you know, economics should be for everybody. It's it's um, you know, you can also go to um my Substack, Capitalist Pig Collective. And um, you know, it's that's a little bit more affordable option for people. Um and uh, you know, so what I do is I try and provide my clients with the tools about how to think about um important phenomenon in the markets and in the economy that are, uh, I, I feel are being misunderstood or underappreciated by, you know, the market consensus. And so instead of um, just giving them point forecasts or telling them, you know, out of a black box, this is what's going to happen. What I do is I look at what are the determinants of outcomes, right? So how does the machine work that's going to decide what happens in this case right and you know that can be purely economics that can be political economics is frequently um one of the main factors that you have to consider um and political economics is something that it's it's probably the easiest of all economics to understand um but it takes a long time and so people tend to in this fast-paced society that we live in it gets it gets horribly ignored because it's like well that's two years away it might as well be on another planet right um but the reason that political economics is so reliable uh in terms of being able to forecast is that people react to incentives the same way across time so a person in the 1700s and a person in 2023 is going to react to the same set of incentives in probably the same way. P human beings don't change that much, right? And so you can say, okay, well, um, if my if I'm a a, um, a central bank uh, governor who's uh, uh, you know if I'm the the Federal Reserve chairman and my job is uh, renewable every four years and uh, I have to keep a political person happy, then I need to respect my inflation mandate because that's, you know, part of how the, the Fed is able to do what it does is that it has credibility. But at the end of the day, if I like my job and I want to keep it, I have to do what is 
politically beneficial to my boss, the president, right? And so, uh, you know, the and when inflation is low and real interest rates are low, there's very little incentive for political capture of the central bank. So the central bank can operate credibly because, uh, you know, it's sort of a self-fulfilling cycle where as long as inflation is low, the politicians will leave them alone because great, that's fine, right? As soon as inflation starts to rise, there becomes a dilemma because the way to defeat it is to is to push down demand and inflation expectations by causing a recession and increasing unemployment, right? And politicians will accept that to a certain extent, especially if you can blame it on someone else. But as inflation rises, the cost of bringing it down gets higher and higher. And uh, one of the um, great economists, Claudio Borio at the BIS, has um, focused on um, an inflationary equilibrium. And when an inflationary equilibrium occurs, that's when the cost of bringing down inflation becomes politically too high. Right. And we've reached that point, unfortunately, in in the Western world, right, where um, the actual cost of bringing it down, they're not going to put up with it. They're going to interfere in any way they can. Um, and so until the the political cost of that inflation becomes greater than the cost of bringing it down, you should expect that they'll 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 make they'll do things to try and stop it when it gets so high. Right. But they'll never squeeze out the expectations. They'll never beat it down to the point where, as Paul Volcker did in 1982, raise interest rates while there was in a recession because inflation expectations were still rising. That's the key to have someone who's willing to say, well, you know, measured inflation is going down. That's great. But inflation expectations are not. And therefore, we need to show everyone that despite all the pain, despite the unemployment, we're still going to keep money tight. Um, and and that only occurred because you had a president and a, a, a chairman of the Federal Reserve who were not of the same party, who were both very strong people and didn't like each other. <laughs> and Reagan tried to intimidate Volcker. But um, there was a like years later, Volcker was told about a, a secret meeting where, with James Baker and and Reagan where Reagan didn't speak. He said it was weird. They went in and and the, like it was like a... a a, like talking um, uh, dummy where this treasury secretary was, was talking for the president and, you know, like ventriloquism, right? Like, so Reagan just sat there mute and Ray and Baker said uh, the, the president would like you to uh, cut interest rates and, uh, or not raise interest rates. And so he, he was, he didn't say anything because he wasn't going to anyway and he didn't want him taking pr credit for it. Um, but um you know, even even in that case where, uh, you know, the, the 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 president had said very publicly that he respected the independence of the Fed and that he was against inflation. Once the political cost was concerning to him, uh, that went away. And it was only that the president that the chairman of the Federal Reserve didn't really care and was like, well, whatever, like if he fires me, he fires me. I don't care uh, because I don't like the guy. <laughs> and so. You know, we don't have that situation right now because uh, Powell is uh, not that sort of person, frankly. He's he's just a more compliant guy. So, so Brian, are, are we are we not entering an inflationary equilibrium at the moment? Then, with what's going on, it feels that like with the push and the pulls going on, mm -hmm. are we entering oh, one or not? 
we're definitely in an inflation equilibrium, inflationary equilibrium. The, the the Fed has set itself up to be overly pessimistic about inflation in the near term and overly optimistic right. in the long term. So they're going to say they, they said, oh, we're expecting inf- core inflation to be three and a half percent at uh, the end of the year. And they'll easily beat that. Right. Inflation, as measured by core PCE, will, will probably get down towards two percent. Right. And they'll say, oh, boy. We're worried about an overshoot now, right? And they're going to start talking about real interest rates, and they might actually they might actually tweak uh, monetary policy, and uh, they'll say we're not easing, right? We're we're maintaining the level of tightness by cutting nominal interest rates to keep real interest rates stable, right? And that as a signal because they're worried about the long end of the bond curve, right? They're they're really they're really worried about. Um, uh, they stuffed down the throat of the banks, all these um, treasury bonds in 2021, right? And now they have to deal with the hangover. And they are genuinely concerned about a financial crisis resulting from that and how they're going to have to react to it. So the best way that they can possibly do that is by cutting the expected path of interest rates without... um dramatically cutting rates, right? Just 25 basis points or something, but the signal is what will be important. Um, And I think that eventually we will move towards yield curve control in the United States, where uh, the goal is going to be to um, repress interest rates and liquidate the the debt through inflation. And the best way to do that without causing a panic um, is to control interest rates. And they did that in 1942. It'll probably be a, a fairly similar um, sort of rollout to that. Um, the The facilities are already in place. So they have a standing repo facility and they have a reverse repo facility, right? So which do opposite things, right? So why would you want to stand on both sides of the market at the same time, right? And, and um, all that needs to be done to change right now, they just have the general collateral rate, right? So all treasury is priced at the same rate. To all they need to do to roll out yield curve control in the United States is say that we will discount rates, uh, discount bonds at X rate for X mature for this maturity for the one year, for the two year, for the three year, and this is what the yield curve will look like. And and so they will probably move into yield curve control, unlike the Bank of Japan, where they bully the markets, right? They'll probably do it by acting as the broker-dealer of first resort, uh, which is what they do with the the way that the Fed funds rate is administered now, right? So they don't set the Fed funds rate. They set the interest on excess reserves, and they basically make it so that the banks wouldn't lend to anyone for less than the desired Fed funds rate, right? And this is why this is what's so important in that uh, I don't think that either the Fed, but especially the market, has appreciated the change in the way the Fed operates since 2008, right? So when they move to an ample reserves regime, the uh, locus of control shifted from the FOMC which sets the Fed funds rate, right? With a market rate of uh, of interest. Um, it shifted to the interest on reserves, which is set by the Federal Reserve Board, the seven politically um, appointed members, right? So the Fed, the, the regional bank presidents have no say in the interest on reserves. So really the, the Fed funds rate is 
uh, it's convenient if it matches up with the interest on reserves, but it is not what sets the market rate of interest, right? So um, now you have four uh, highly partisan governors appointed by Biden. They outnumber, uh, they, they represent a majority of the Federal Reserve Board. And the, the, the chairman of the Fed can never, ever lose a vote. Right. That, so it's not Arthur's roundtable. Right. So Mervyn King, uh, you know, he frequently was on the losing side of votes at the Bank of England. Right. It's a much more intellectually honest committee. Right. The FOMC is not that. And it's not even the most important of the two committees that that right now. Right. The, the most important of the two is the Federal Reserve Board. So um, Biden has appointed four uh, uh, Ph.D. economists. Right. All professors who are, if you look at the work of Thomas Haverleski, um, which is monet uh, um, Political Pressures on, on Monetary Policy in the United States, it's a great book. Um, he did a statistical analysis of voting patterns based on the resumes of uh, the various board members going back to the start of the Fed. Um, and he found that the... Um, uh, the um, uh, the professors were the most politically reliable, right? And the reason is it's very similar to um, picking Supreme Court members, right? Where if you pick the, the board members of the year for 14 years, you can't fire them. So you're going to pick someone who you can rely on, right? A, because they're they're partisan, or B, because they're just really stubborn in, in what they believe, right? And so um, you can look at the papers that they've written, and you can say, okay, this person is uh, going to... Um, focus on labor uh, almost exclusively, which is what all of the people that he's picked have have focused on. Um, and you can guess pretty reliably what they're going to do, right? And and if as that political capture becomes more important and becomes um, a bigger factor, then you start to get actual partisans like Arthur Burns or William Miller, um, who were picked by uh, Richard Dixon and, and um, Jimmy Carter, respectively, who were just outright political boosters in their career, you know, political fundraisers uh, uh, prior to being chairman of the Fed. They were just political hacks. Um, and so we don't we're not quite there yet, but we definitely have four partisans and a chairman who's not uh, who's not Paul Volcker. He's not willing to have a fight. Right. He's not going to be on the losing side. He's going to go along with what they say. Um, and we're entering an election year. So. Uh, you know, there's a pretty good bet that they're going to be looking out for Biden and they're going to want to signal to the market that don't worry, there's not going to be any higher rates. Um, and if any sort of trouble erupts in financial markets, we're there for you. Don't have a recession, everyone. Right. That's their message. Yeah, that's, I, I understand that. So let me just go back a bit then. And, and you talked about the signals. So we've got a total drawdown in the ultra long U.S. Treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. That's now exceeded the stock market peak to trough mm -hmm. of the crash, financial crash of 2008, nine. Why is no one taking any notice of that at the moment then? The signal's there, mm -hmm. but that peak to trough regarding ultra long treasury bonds, but everyone's going, it's okay. We're, we'll carry on doing what we're doing. Um, I think that the that did start to happen in March of 2023. Right. But the signal was banks. sent because it was banks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was banks. Yeah. So the signal was sent to the banks. I mean, that's the most important part of um, the financial system in general. Right. Um, and so 
you know, the credit creation has um, has been allowed to continue. Like people focus on bank credit overall, but the the securities portfolios have definitely shrunk. But lending is still occurring, um, and that's because they said to they sent a signal to the banks, "Don't worry, we'll bail you out." Um, and you know, if if long term interest rates continue to move up, there definitely will be continued pressure. Um, but my 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 expectation is is that through yield curve control, right, they will come to the rescue and they will provide liquidity. So it's one thing everybody focuses on um, interest rates being high, but at the end of the day, right, if you have a bond that's gone down in value, but the bank says, "Don't worry, we'll we'll repo it at par," then okay, great. So what, <laughs> right? I can take that garbage bond and repo it and go lend it out and make even more money, right? So, so their willingness to um, probably what they'll do is they'll uh, what they did in 2020 and 2021 was to exempt treasuries from the supplementary leverage ratio, right? So to incentivize um, purchasing of because they're going to need to fund this massive deficit that we have, right? And the best way to do that is to say, oh, those don't count. You can definitely buy those. And if you buy it, you get the rate of return on it and you can use it to show up to get even more cash at the Fed to then go do what you want with it, right? So uh, in 1942, the way that they financed the deficit was by incentivizing banks to give up treasury bills and move into bonds, right? And uh, and it worked spectacularly, right? By the end, by the 1950s, the early 1950s, the Fed owned almost all the treasury bills. And uh, the, the the banking sector held a huge position in bonds. Um, and so they're, they're going to need to move people out the yield curve. And the best way to do that is to say, well, these things don't count for capital ratios. And if you need cash, don't worry, we got it. Forget what the interest rate is. We will give you par. Um, and uh, because those are risk-free. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great yeah, distinction. Ab ab absolutely. Right? So, 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 so today, the ten-year U.S. Treasury yield exceeded five percent for the first time since two thousand and seven. Mm -hmm. So, what are they saying? What are they sending signals? What signals are they sending to the markets and investors today? Then, as it, I mean, you know, I, I, they don't want to, to get involved, right? They would like for for things to work out on their own, right? Uh, and uh, you know, they're not. Um, um, Machiavellian, right? They're not all controlling, but they will react if they see a problem, right? So that right now they're they're hoping that falling measured inflation, right, and um, uh, the job owning will cut down on those long term interest rate expectations, right? So if you look at the a lot of the Fed speak lately has been that there's there's uh, more tightening coming that's lagged, right? And so they're all talking about the risk of over tightening. Philip Jefferson has been very big on this, right? Uh, and he's a Biden guy. And so, you know, they're talking about this lag tightening that's that's behind the scenes that's going to come and we got to watch out for that. And the signal they're sending is don't worry, more and more clearly, interest rates are not going any higher, right? Um, but at the end of the day, there's an inflation expectations component on the long end of the curve, right? So if you're you want to have your nominal rate be protected, um, and so uh, you know, on the market you can't just physically go ask the market. So why are interest rates going higher, right? So at the end of the day, the Fed can infer or say that it infers whatever it wants, right? And so they can say, well, we're, we're we think that the market is over expecting higher interest rates from us, and 
We want to provide stability and that's part of our mandate. So, uh, you know, as soon as the, um, you know, I would say as the, 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 the TLT VIX, right. The, the, um, volatility on interest rates starts to get to a point where, um, buying protection from those moves becomes prohibitively expensive. Look for the Fed to step in as the broker dealer of first resort, uh, which is what it's done in the money market, right? So that you know the, the, they don't have to go down the exact road of the bank, uh, the Bank of Japan, and I don't expect them to. What I expect them to do is incentivize people, banks, to buy treasury bonds to fund the deficit by saying, anytime you need cash, we'll give you to you at par. Okie dokie. So given all that we've discussed thus far, Brian, I think what our global investors would like to know now, given all of the macro dynamics, political, geopolitical, as we see in everywhere around the world at the moment, um, how do you go about investing yourself? What's your investment strategy, asset allocation, and how are you fighting the, the cycles mm -hmm. of inflation and interest rates? By so to to in a in a in an environment of intertemporal disequilibrium, right, which is what we've been in since the '90s, um, investors need to focus on the return of capital, not just the return on capital, right? Make sure you get your money back. And for a while, that was watching out for um, uh, defaults and and you know the the value of the investment going to zero in nominal terms, right? When they were willing to have a liquidation. That has that game is now shifted, and you now need to worry about the re the real value of your capital, right? So it's all well and good if you buy um, a government paper, but it won't buy you a hamburger in ten years, right? Um, you know that's that's the reality. Um, so what you need to do is you need to um, think about investments that um, will stay ahead of inflation, so inflation sensitive assets that will react quickly. But one of the dangers of investing in inflation-sensitive assets is, is that those will attract, There are a, there's a whole community of professional speculators out there, right? And they are going to pile into those assets at the first sign of inflation. And as an individual investor, you're probably not going to beat those people in terms of timing, right? So you have a certain amount of downside risk. You shouldn't pile everything into inflation-sensitive assets. Um, because you're getting these ups and downs. You do have, you know, high inflation is really high inflation volatility. Uh, and so on the downside of the inflation, you're going to lose out. So you have to take active bets that will stay ahead of inflation, that will generate the returns, and then also look out for um, less sensitive assets that will keep their real value, um, but then also not collapse in uh, as soon as inflation starts to deteriorate. So, you know, with gold being an obvious uh, uh, example of that. And there are others. Um, and so you you make your bets on the inflation-sensitive assets. And then as those bets start to pay off, move the money into inflation-protected securities that will maintain their real value even after uh, uh, the hottest period of inflation passes. Um, and be aware that... Um, Unlike the 1970s, uh, there's a huge asset bubble, right? So there, there already has been a huge amount of inflation that's taken place. It's just been in the form of assets. So there is a uh, the risk that at the end of this, you get an unwinding 
um, in deflationary terms. But I, I, I think that it's more likely that they they bleed off the asset values in real terms. Um, so you know, uh, um, you know, keep keep. Um, uh, how should I put this? Um, don't buy into people's enthusiasm. Is is the uh, you know is is definitely something to be to be um, you know uh, when you're when you're looking at um, follow follow um, Mervyn King's advice and and believe in the audacity of pessimism. I think that's the uh, that's the way to go is is to um, to realize that people will be selling solutions and they'll be looking to move money into speculative investments, right? that could generate high returns. I'm thinking, you know, AI things and things like that, right? But those are sensitive to liquidation and to to busts, right? And those do occur in inflationary environments. So you need to you need to be focused on staying ahead of inflation, but be aware of the investment busts that will be part of that. Thank you for that reply. And one of the, the companies that you mentioned was a capital preservation vehicle, the UK investment group, um, Ruffer. You, yes. you, you said that you like that one as a particular preservation. Ruffer is a great possibly. firm. They're, they are near and dear to my heart. Um, they, you know, they're a great alternative to, you know, they're in the UK, but they're, they're culturally, they're very different from firms on wall street um, where a lot of, uh, a lot of hedge funds hire, uh, you know, horses for courses, as they say, right. Where it's just somebody who's in there to trade and make money in the short term for the fund. And maybe if the investors get paid, that's nice too, right? Um, but there isn't necessarily a whole lot of um, intellectual depth to these firms. But at Ruffer, all of the portfolio managers are expected to publish research and to produce um, uh, intellectual property that is uh, uh, thoughtful and valuable. Um, and so any the rougher review is something that's publicly available. People can read it, right? They have a great podcast, uh, you know, that's not exactly a competitor to you. So um, <laughs> and it's kind of a different, different, you know, sort of focus. Um, take, yeah. yeah so, um, and, um, uh, you know, I think that's a, um, a great, um, you know, and they and they've it's always a race with them, you know, to, to produce these insights, right? Like they're, they're a friendly competitor in that way to me um, in that they're producing um, really important insights and they have done a great job of um, talking about inflation volatility and how investors can protect themselves from it. Um, and they provided this free of charge to the general public who's interested in looking Um uh, and and you know they provide it as a service to their investors, but they provide the knowledge to the general public, which I think is great. Economics should be for everybody. It's not something that's just for you know weirdos who work on Wall Street or geniuses or whatever. Like it's it's something that every single person can and should understand. Brilliant, love that reply, Brian. I'm conscious of the time, Brian, so I'm going to ask you two more questions. Sure. And the, the first one I want to ask you is your greatest lessons learned through your career mm -hmm. and other business interests, because you've got some other stuff that you do as well. So, what's been the greatest lessons, and what you know, what did you learn from all all of this time in and out of Wall Street and dealing with the macro and the microeconomics? Yeah, um, I would say it's to um, 
anytime someone presents you with the opportunity of a lifetime to invest in, um, try and figure out what the scam is first. And if you can't figure out what the scam is, then maybe there isn't one, right? But um, or maybe it's you. Or yeah, <laughs> don't allow other people's enthusiasm to sweep you up in uh, bad investment advice, right? Enthusiasm is not intellectual backing, right? It's great if someone's enthusiastic about something, but that can be, um, you know, affected. It's not necessarily uh, uh, genuine. Um, and and even someone who's enthusiastic about something might have no idea what they're doing. So uh, that's a, that's an important thing to understand is make sure that there's intellectual backing to what they're selling. Fantastic. I love that report. Now, um, lastly, I just want to ask you with regards to the, the markets per se, we're going into 2024 in three months time. Um, where do you see the landline regarding interest rates and inflation. What's your three to nine months sort of overview just to give our global mm -hmm. audience so, a sort of pitch? So right now in October of 23, um, measured inflation is coming down because, um, in, you know, inflation works on like a pipeline, right? So the end of the pipeline where you and I go to the store and buy something, right? That's where it gets measured in the official figures, right? But uh, that's already baked in. Right. That's already that's done. And right. Um, the the seeds of that inflation are at the beginning of the pipeline. Right. The Chinese factories, the supply lines. Right. And so looking at um, the factors that I look at right now, I think we've got another two or three months, four months of core inflation coming down very quickly. Right. At, to the point where it's going to scare the authorities and they're going to start to worry and talk about the possibility of an overshoot. Right. The most dovish members already are. Um, but uh, by the spring, um, the things that are in the front of the pipeline now are going to start showing up. And so you're going to start to see rising inflation coming, um, you know, say April, May. Um, but the problem is, is that as, and especially if they if they have a policy tweak to uh, cut real to keep real interest rates stable, they're going to be embarrassed and they're not going to want to raise interest rates. Right. Um and so they're going there there is going to be an embarrassing pause where inflation is accelerating and the fed's telling us once again that it's transitory and temporary and vladimir putin's fault right and um and then you get to uh and and this is exactly what happened with the stop start monetary policy of the 1970s then you get to uh you know early fall and they need to react sharply because inflation is getting to scary levels and they dramatically raise interest rates right if that leads to um, a uh, that will likely lead to a recession. And um, if you then also have uh, whoever's president, but especially if you have a, a new administration coming in, right, they're going to be put pressuring very heavily for a reversal. Right. So, I mean, if it's if it's Biden and he's got his four people on there, then then they're going to be politically uh, interested in helping him. But even if it's not, the Fed is still reactive to the new administration. Right. Um, and so you're likely to get um, a, a reversal before the end of the year um, because there's a recession. But then that's just just like 1973. They're cutting interest rates before the inflation expectations have started to fall. Um, and so that just feeds into that next cycle. And you have less Fed credibility and the cost of defeating inflation the next time 
gets even higher. So it's even less likely that they'll do something about it. Brilliant. Love that response. Now, now, Brian, I'm conscious that we've got some global hedge funds that listen to the podcast, banks that listen to the podcast, and high net worth individuals that listen to the podcast. So please can you reiterate where these individuals can find you um, sure. on the web, et cetera, and other platforms sure. as well. The most direct way is to email info at acrosstime.net. That's definitely the best way. Um, but you can find Intertemporal Economics on LinkedIn. You can go to the Capitalist Pig Collective Substack, capitalistpigcollective.substack.com. Um, that's sort of the retail offering, and there's some, uh, you know, some of the work on there. Um, and those are those are definitely the best ways. Brilliant. Ladies and gents, that was Brian Pellegrini, the founder and senior analyst at Intertemporal Economics. Brian, thank you ever so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you, sir. Thank you, Peter. It was spectacular. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.